This is the Baymo Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am with Josh Basset to resume our re-examination of John 6 as Jesus continues to subvert the expectations of the people as the second Moses. Yes, now we get to get into the meat of John 6. No pun intended. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That pun was entirely intentional. <laughs> um, but before we dive in, just to... Uh, uh, recap from last time um it's passover time uh the people are seeing jesus do a lot of signs they're starting to think you know could this guy be our moses we're ready to leave egypt we're done with rome and jesus uses this moment as a you know kind of a test a teaching moment for his disciples specifically philip and and or philip specifically is who he's testing and he basically asks him um can we really give these people, the Passover, the Exodus that they're expecting. And Philip answers, I think, very well, which is, I think, why we don't see Jesus rebuke him. Um, and he basically acknowledges that the people are zealous. The people have an earnest, deep desire to follow Jesus, but there's a short-sightedness and maybe a little bit of naivety in how to actually bring kingdom and basically that they, they don't get the full scope of what Jesus is doing. And then Andrew chimes in on top of that and suggests that they kind of whittle down these people, much like Gideon did with his army. And specifically, he says to do this by by giving them Torah to, to play into the role of second Moses that they are looking for and um, to give them the Torah, but maybe not the Torah that they expect to, to basically uh, – break down their expectations and let that kind of uh, uh, winnow down the people. And uh, so now we are, oh wait, yeah, shoot, we we forgot to, <laughs> dang it, <laughs> Brett, we forgot to read the last part of uh, John chapter six. Well, I, you know, I did think about it, but I didn't know if you actually needed it or not. And technically we read it before. So we have, we have fulfilled our every verse requirement. So... <laughs> Okay. I okay. I didn't want to push it if you didn't actually need me to read it. So, but I'm, I'm happy <laughs> oh, to do so shoot. now. Yeah, I read all the notes for that part, so I, I discussed it. Um, yeah. So I guess we can just move on then. <laughs> Gosh dang okay. it! I did not mean to do that. <laughs> well, people can read it themselves. I'm. I hope that they are reading it themselves. Um, certainly. So that's true. Um, okay. I'm. I'm not going to lose too much sleep over it. So after his disciples give these responses, Jesus basically. Uh, acts in uh, accordance with what they say, although that was what he was already intending. They were just picking up what he was putting down. And Jesus feeds the 5,000, as we know. And he basically confirms to the people that 100% he is the guy they're looking for. He's the second Moses. He's on a mountain giving them bread using Torah numbers. And not only that, at the end of it, um, I don't think we covered this last time, but there are the, the 12 baskets of bread that are gathered, basically Jesus inviting these people to be the new 12, the new Israel, and kind of inviting them to keep walking down that path and to see if that's really what they can do. And so in a way that they're they're kind of now, they've, they've been to Sinai, they've been to the mountain, they've received the bread, now they're going into the desert. Um so what we're going to do as we move through the rest of chapter six is we are going to need to be paying close attention to any other parallels we might notice to Jesus and Moses and the people that are following him and Israel in the Exodus uh, desert 
narrative, that whole period. So let's go ahead and start in verse 15, Brent. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Yes. Now, a couple things right off the bat. First of all, uh, in Moses' story, did we have anything about Moses being a ruler and judge of the people? Right. And what did the people say to Moses? Yeah, they didn't they didn't actually want to make him king yet at this point. Right. They don't they don't use that no, word. No, they, they don't use they don't use the word king. That That is a little bit of a mismatch. But when Moses steps in to try and lead the people initially, they say, you know, back off. Who are you to be ruler and judge over us? Whereas here, the people want to make Jesus king. In fact, they want to do it so bad that they're going to do it by force. Yeah. And what's also interesting is that just like in the Moses story, Moses runs away after that. But this time, instead of running away from Pharaoh, he's running away from the people. Uh, and so initially we're going to see, this is what we're going to see the rest of the chapter. All of the roles are reversed. The people are going to be Israel, but getting it right this time. And Jesus is going to be a really bad version of Moses. <laughs> um and so with that, let's go ahead and uh, continue reading up through verse 25. Uh, sorry, I was just checking the Septuagint to see if that word king shows up in any particular place, and it shows mm -hmm. up 2,530 times. So, <laughs> probably, Yeah, that's, that's a common one. <laughs> probably not going to find anything there of interest. Um, okay. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, uh, which footnote, five or six kilometers, I don't know what the actual... <laughs> uh, mine says 25 or 30 stadia. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. And I see that in the NET footnotes. They also translated three or four miles, but I wonder if those numbers are important. So 25 or 30 Could be. stadia. So when they had rowed that distance. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> yes, the people are a little confused. And what do we have here if not a miraculous crossing of the sea? Except this time... Moses slash Jesus uh, does it without the people. <laughs> Again, not a great Moses. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not only that, we have we have the wind there, we have the darkness. Those were both uh, big elements of the uh, first, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea at the Exodus. So very clear parallels there. But again, Jesus is doing it without the people, not being a great Moses. But the people follow despite being totally abandoned by Jesus. And when they show up, like, I don't know if there's something more to their answer or a question of, uh, well, Rabbi, when did you get here? But at the very least, we can see they're not angry. They're not complaining. Again, not very uh, 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 much like the original Israelites uh, left with Moses. Yeah, the way you say that, it, it does make me wonder where the emphasis is on that question. 
<laughs> is it more like is it more like they're trying to play it cool like oh oh rabbi when did you get here yeah yeah like like they were they weren't following him they just happened to run into him yeah it, it really makes you wonder if they were like were they just trying to find the disciples so maybe the disciples could tell them where jesus was um it is interesting too because it doesn't mention them looking for jesus um but it does yeah i, I don't know it, it's a little bit convoluted there but you know, either way they're, they're once again, they really want to follow Jesus badly. Like they're, (laughs) they're doing everything they can to keep after this guy. Uh, very interesting. Let's go ahead and read the next little bit here. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Yes. Now, this is a little bit problematic because this does not seem to match what we see in the text. In fact, you know, first of all, we know they were following him because of signs, even before he gave them bread. And in fact, back in verse 14, uh, when the people saw him, his sign of the feeding with the 5,000, they specifically say, this is the prophet who has come into the world. They, they reference the prophecy of the second Moses. They they get that Jesus is the second Moses. They want to follow him. They want to make him king. Like, it doesn't seem like they're looking for a meal ticket here. It seems like they genuinely want to follow Jesus. Um, and they they correctly interpreted the sign, too. It's not like they took away the wrong message. Jesus intentionally played into being the second Moses. And, in fact, Jesus is the second Moses. I mean, that's that was part of the whole Messiahship thing. So it's they're, they're getting it right, but... Jesus is getting on them for wanting bread, but what it doesn't seem to match their actions. Now, we could take that to either mean Jesus is right and the people have these secret intentions and he's using his God goggles to, you know, see their their real, real thoughts. Or we could say, you know, Jesus just isn't making sense here. Let's move on. But I would like to propose that maybe Jesus is doing something deeper, making a little uh, rabbinic point here. And uh, I'm not going to give it away yet, but we're, I think we're going to see it uh, uh, kind of explicated as we continue through this chapter. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Mm-hmm. Again, like, man, that response does not sound like people who are just looking to to get some free food. Um, but not only that, if we're thinking in Exodus terms, um, what does the food or the bread that perishes remind you of, Brent? Well, the manna. The manna, exactly. It, it didn't keep. You had to get new bread each day, and if you kept any extra, it would go bad. And so here we have Jesus, the second Moses, not just giving them the manna, but trashing the manna, saying, oh, you shouldn't want manna. You should you should want uh, better food than that. And the people are very content with manna. They, <laughs> they, uh, they like the manna. Again, a clear reversal of what happens in Exodus. Um, I'm not sure if we should get into this. The, I was a little curious about the whole um, seal business, God putting his seal on Jesus. If anything, that's probably a reference to the priests and the tabernacle. Um, but then it gets into like, is Jesus trying to make a reference to maybe showbread or the offerings? What is the the food that comes out of that? I, I don't know. There, there might be something there, but I, I don't have anything too juicy. But again, I think the other 
point to remember here is that the people's attitude is totally different than Israel. Uh, kind of a, a reversal because Moses is usually the one who reacts humbly. Um, but here it's the people. They, they uh, you know, take this rebuke on the, on the chin and then just say, okay, what do we got to do to do God's work? Like, again, they're not even saying like, what should we do? But like, how can we participate in God's work? How can we participate in kingdom? Like they want to do God's work, make Jesus King, follow him as the second Moses. Like what exactly are they doing wrong? I don't get it yet. And and again, like, you know, as the disciples point out, they're, they're really serious about following Jesus. Um, as, as much as they might be missing some of what Jesus is putting down, even if they don't get the, the revolutionary scope of what Jesus is doing, they do have a genuine desire to follow him. And I think that means we really have to ask, like, why is Jesus reacting this way? Why is he treating the people like this? Because it was pretty harsh. And with that, let's continue. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now here, I think we have a little bit of a translation issue, particularly in verse 30. I think there, the people are not, I think they're asking a rhetorical question, basically. Because um, Jesus says, hey, the work is that you believe in the one God sent. And they're... I mean, they do believe in Jesus. They they just said a couple of verses ago, you're the second Moses. We want to follow you. They crossed the sea after Jesus ditched them. Like they, they, uh, they seem to believe in Jesus. And when Jesus tells them just to believe, they say, what then are you doing? Uh, I'm reading from the NASB now. What then are you doing as a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work are you performing? But we know that they've seen him do lots of works. And so I hear this as them saying, well, then what sign are you talking about? What sign are we supposed to pay attention to? Which then makes sense of verse 31. Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. And they're saying, you just fed us manna. And our fathers ate man in the wilderness. What are we missing here? What sign do you want us to look at, dude? We see you giving us manna and we say you're the second Moses. What are we doing wrong? And at this point, they uh, quote from Psalm 78 when they say, uh, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And this is a brilliant remez. The people are making a really, really good point here. And so to understand that, we're going to have to flip over to Psalm 78, and we're not going to read the whole thing because it gets a little repetitive at the end for our purposes, but we're going to read a good chunk of it. So why don't you go ahead and read the first half of that, Brent? My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would, the, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. 
He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with the and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. So first of all, you know, the opening of this psalm is very clearly about like this uh, uh, lineage, this passing on of teaching from one generation to the next, making uh, uh, that teaching clear to the next generation so that they don't forget. And what a, first of all, like what a perfect thing for them to say to Jesus right now, like, Hey, whatever you're trying to teach us, it's not very clear. Why don't you teach us more clearly? Cause that's what keeps this whole project, this whole national project of trying to follow Adonai and know Torah. That's what this is all about. Why, like, why aren't you teaching us clearly? And again, I, I want us like, you know, Jesus obviously has a reason for this and we're going to get into that, but I want us to, again, hear like the earnest heart of the people here and not just that, but like there is a, a, um, I think a real pain and, and fear even because this, uh, Psalm turns and it says, you know, even with us keeping that remembrance alive, we still failed God. We still fell short. We still made big mistakes. And so I think the people, are on one level saying like, at, at the least you can do is give us this clear teaching. Even with the clear teaching, we sometimes make mistakes and you're not even going to give us clear teaching. What are you doing, Jesus? We need you to teach us clearly to tell us what we're missing. Now let's go ahead and read the rest of the Psalm and get up uh, past the point where uh, they're actually quoting. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the most high. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was furious. His fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel. For they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. He let loose the east wind from the heavens and by his power made the south wind blow. He rained meat down on them like dust, birds like sand on the seashore. He made them come down inside their camp, all around their tents. They ate till they were gorged. He had given them what they craved. The interesting thing is the part that they quote about... Um, God giving them manna to eat comes in direct response to the people failing. And again, I, I think this is a mark of humility for the people following Jesus because it seems like what they're saying is, you know, even when the people of Israel failed, God still gave them manna. And even if we've made mistakes, you should still give us this clear teaching. And I think it's interesting too, you know, this Psalm, even uh, I think it was earlier in the first half, they talk about like not making the mistakes of their fathers and, and, you know, holding onto these words and passing them on. And we can see the people genuinely doing that. They are trying to be the 12 tribes that Jesus asked them to be. And they're trying to do it right. They're avoiding all the mistakes their fathers made. And even here at this moment when they're being rebuked and they don't understand why they're humble. And they say, even if we had make mistakes, like God gave us mercy and still fed us manna, 
why don't you give us clear teaching? And what's interesting here is they kind of shift the meaning of the bread they're talking about from the literal bread to the bread of teaching in Torah. Um, and so I wonder if in there, there's like a subtle rebuke of Jesus's uh, accusation that they just want, you know, they just want a, a free, uh, free lunch. Um, and they're saying like, no, what we want is clear teaching, dude, like throw us a bone. Like, what are we doing wrong? Like, even if we are doing something wrong, you should still teach us and tell us what's going on. Brilliant remiss. Um, you have any thoughts on that, Brent? Um, I, I think more thoughts will emerge as we continue in the passage. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. You've seen, you've seen the notes. You got the peek behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This time I know for sure where you're going with it. Usually, <laughs> usually when I ruin Marty's teaching, it's because I don't know where he's going with it. I haven't seen his notes. And so I say something in ignorance, but this time I'm going to hold my tongue because I know what's coming. Oh yeah. Well, you know, with, with as many, uh, remezes as we had to get through, I figured we, we better have some good notes going into it so we don't get lost. <laughs> yes. Um, so basically the people are saying, Hey, you know, even if we screwed up, even if we screwed up bad, like as bad as our fathers did, which they haven't, um, you should still, you know, still give us the manna. And, um, and they're using a very classic rabbinic argument of light to heavy. They're saying, you know, if God would forgive them and still provide them with what they need when they've done this really heavy thing, when we haven't even done something that heavy, you should be even more willing to forgive us. Um, so they're basically, they're asking Jesus for clarity and teaching and, um, let's, and I think Jesus gives them that. Um, and we'll see that in the next couple verses. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Okay, so Jesus finally spills and starts doing some serious teaching. And the first thing He does is He kind of tweaks their their uh, framing of the whole situation and says, you know, you did, the bread didn't really come from Moses. It came from God. And that's going to be really important. He's going to come back to that. On on that statement, though, he says, uh, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, mm-hmm. but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. So it almost seems like he's talking about completely different things. Exactly. And, and I think that's what he does in the next verse, because he talks about bread. He's like, the bread didn't come from Moses. And in fact, the true bread comes from the father. So he's both making the point that God's the one who actually provided the manna. That's one level. But then another level, he's saying there isn't even truer bread that God is providing you. And I think he clarifies that in the next verse when he says, the bread of God is everything that comes out of heaven and gives life to the world, which like, that's a, that's a, a, a big, like, again, we were talking earlier about the people maybe not getting Jesus's scope. This is a huge change in scope. He's saying God, like everything that gives life to the world, everything that gives life 
life to you. Everything that you experience, the goodness of creation, that is God's bread. It is all around you every day. It is, and, and it's coming from God. And what Jesus is starting to try and get them to realize is that um, it wasn't from Moses. It was from God. And what he's trying to invite them into is maybe to see that they can just get that directly from God. Maybe they don't need to have Moses the way they had Moses in the desert. Maybe our second Moses isn't exactly like the first Moses. I mean, I think he's been hammering that point home pretty strongly. Um, and the people are like so focused on this idea we've seen over and over again of they're the people of Israel, but they're doing it right this time. And Jesus is saying like, you're missing the point. The point is we're doing something totally different. The bread isn't just the manna. It's, it's, it's everything God has given you. And what do they say to him immediately? Lord, always give us this bread. They immediately miss the point. They say, you give us this bread always, <laughs> even though he's trying to tell them it, it comes from God. You can just, you know, it, it, you're, you're already getting it all the time. And uh, this is, it seems to be like we've arrived at like the nugget of contention, the thing that Jesus is really trying to get them to understand. And the other thing that he kind of continues to do in like shifting this image of bread away from the literal bread, just as like the people kind of shifted bread to talk about teaching. And Jesus is like, no, it's even actually bigger than teaching. It's every good thing that comes from God. Everything that gives life to the world is the bread of heaven. And then he shifts it again and talks about himself being the bread. This is the first time uh, in this passage he introduces this. And this is kind of the image that eventually snowballs into Jesus, you know, ranting about them needing to uh, do cannibalism. Uh, but it starts right here where he says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. And what he's starting to do is associate like that, that whatever – access Jesus has to this heavenly bread, they can partake in as well. They can partake in the the life of Jesus. In essence, he's, you know, we, if we kind of want to zoom way out, he's inviting them to just like live like him. Like you, you can do the things I'm doing, you know, as Jesus will say in uh, uh, a future point, um, you know, you'll do greater things than what you've seen me do. Um but crucially, he, he goes down, he keeps like kind of introducing this idea. And in verse 36, he again calls out their lack of belief. But I think at this point, we are going to start to see what Jesus really means by the lack of belief, because they clearly believe in Jesus. Um, oh, and you know, what? I didn't even think about this because it, it, this came right after the walking on water thing. And I think this will have the same theme as the classic walking on water story with Peter. Um because what they what he says after that in verse uh, 37 through 40 it's all about that the people are secure everyone god gives me i won't lose them i won't cast anyone out i've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of god he's saying what is the will of god to uh, make sure that god everything god's given to jesus jesus will lose nothing everything will be raised up on the last day everyone will have eternal life everyone who comes to Jesus will be raised up on the last day. Like there's this, he's emphasizing really heavily this, this security. Like, again, if we remember back to the Psalm they remezzed, it was like, well, we have to hold on to this chain of teaching and remembrance and following the Torah and doing all this, because if we lose that chain, then we start to sin. And then we go into exile and we don't want to do that. So we hold on to the chain and Jesus is saying, Hey, 
hey, hey, hey, hey, it's okay. You don't have to hold on so tightly. I've got you. God's got you. God is not just going to let you go. God is not going to cast you out. Like you are held, you are secure. You and God are good. And that is the thing that they need to believe in and have faith in, in order to step into what Jesus is actually inviting them into, into the actual role of this new Israel and new Moses setup that Jesus is trying to describe for them. Now, and all that, did you have anything you wanted to chime in with Brent? I know I uh, said a lot there. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. Not yet. <laughs> Very good. All right. So let's see how the Jews respond to this um, in uh, the next uh, next couple verses. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. Yes. Now, there may be some layers to their complaint here um, that I am not seeing, but I, I think there's a couple levels of significance around what their actual complaint is. And the first is that they've started complaining. Now that we see them for the first time falling into the pattern of the original Israelites, Um What's also interesting here, and this kind of goes back into the subversion aspect, is that they talk about knowing Jesus's lineage, whereas, you know, Moses's lineage is kind of a, a shadowy, questionable piece of his story. Um, so there might be an angle there. But ultimately, if we notice where they got hung up, regardless of what their like specific complaint is, they get hung up right before Jesus started talking about all the security stuff, about all the like, God's got you. It's it's right when he says, I'm the, uh, uh, or I have a come down out of heaven to do the will of the father. And it's right after that, that he like really hammers on to like, uh, you need to believe that I've got you. And so it's like in getting caught up on this detail, they've missed the thing that Jesus has been trying to emphasize, which is that like, in order to step into what I'm asking you to step into, you have to believe that I've got you. You have to trust you got to trust God, that God has got you, that God's desire, God's root desire, God's will. It's not even my will. It's God's will that you are held and secure and that nothing will separate you from this kingdom that we're building together. And they miss that. They immediately miss that. And that's what causes this cycle of complaining. And what I love here too, is how Jesus responds to them. Cause again, it's a very un-Moses type response where he's just like, Hey, stop complaining. He just like totally dismisses it and immediately goes back into like, you're like, let's not get distracted. Um, you're here because God drew you here and I've got you. I'm going to raise you up on the last day. Like he doesn't let them, he doesn't follow their little rabbit trail. He pulls them right back to, I've got you and you need to trust that. Um, and, uh, we're going to see Jesus kind of go a step further in this clarification by coming back at them with a big old remez uh, that we'll see in a couple verses here. Yeah. So <laughs> as I looked this up, I'm having like total deja vu. So I'm wondering if I actually mentioned this in the uh, previous episode with Marty and Reed. Um, but the word for grumble in the Septuagint first mentions back to numbers 11 
immediately mm. before it's immediately before they get quail for the first time. Oh, really? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did that's I juicy. say that? I cannot believe I like, I'm to- I feel like I totally like brought this up. I know that they, they got, they, they got on the parallel between the, the, the bread in the desert and the meat in the desert. Um, I'm not sure if I remember that, but that's, that's, I mean, either way, a plus Brent Billings. Thank you for that pull. That's great. Well, the Septuagint, um, doesn't always, uh, (laughs) yield any results, but when it does, it's pretty great. It's very great. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're about to see Jesus give him a, a, not exactly quail, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Yes. So Jesus responds by quoting from Isaiah 54, and we are just going to read the whole thing. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore, this is is so weird, because this is God talking. Yes. (laughs) And he's like musing. To me, this is like the days of Noah. It is such an interesting... God reminiscing. yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't like catch that the first time I read through this. Um, To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Mm. 
That is some good stuff. All your children will be taught by the Lord and the shalom of your children will be great. That is what Jesus is quoting here. And again, I think first, very big picture, we can see that theme of trust and security and like that is that permeates every pore of this uh, piece of Isaiah. Like God's got you. God has got you to the end. You are okay. And um, your children will be okay. And in fact, the, the repeated image of a barren woman, a widowed woman, a woman who's estranged from her husband, who is in this case, God, like, I think that is really getting at um, the heart of the people, the, the fear behind this unwillingness to, to trust. Like they, again, back to their remez, the, the chain, the chain of one generation passing it on to the next. Jesus, it picks the, oh man, it's it's a perfect remiss because it literally uses the same imagery, but it subverts it because it says, no, even if you're barren, even if you don't have any kids, you'll still have kids. God's going to make that work. The barren one will have more children than the one who has a husband. You know, the, it it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't necessarily seem like that's what's going to happen, but God has got you. God will make you great. God will not leave you alone. God will not abandon you. Your children are going to be okay. They're going to be like, they're going to be taught by God and their shalom will be great. That is what Jesus is reminding us. Like, this is who God is. You can trust that. You can trust that. And, and that's just on the surface level, on a deeper level, We have a reiteration about his point about the bread coming from God and not Moses because what does the passage say? Your children will be taught not by Moses. Your children will be taught by God. It's not from me. God is the source. You can just go to the source. And and again, when when I say Jesus is saying, it's not me, it's God. I mean, Jesus, the man, like, like you said in the last episode, like in this moment, this, this temporary Jesus who walked around earth for a short time, um, that guy wasn't around to teach them forever. He couldn't keep giving them the bread. Like they asked him, they, they said, you know, give us his bread forever. Jesus can do that. But he's telling him like, God's still there and God will, God will teach your children. Um, and literally, like the, the, we could also compare this to the Abraham and Sarah narrative with the, the barrenness angle. There's some clear parallels there. Like all the separation you feel from God, again, going back to this Passover imagery, they, they're under Roman oppression. They're feeling ready to leave Egypt. And he says all of the shame and humiliation and the desolation, all the lack that you feel will be totally forgotten and wiped away in God's great compassion and redemption. And what I love about this passage too, is that it doesn't just use redemption in the theological sense, but even more immediately in the, in the, the uh, literal, like legal material sense back then of like, like in, in Ruth of a, a widow being remarried and, and being returned to the state of like having a provider, having a husband, having a family, like it's a very um, like, it's not just a big theological statement. It's also a very intimate human statement of like, you will have a husband again. You will have a family again. You don't need to cling on to like me in this moment. And, and like, we have to, we have to keep the chain going. We have to make sure that our children know the right things so that they don't mess up and get us back into exile. We have to do the right things. We have to not make the same mistakes our fathers made. 
And Jesus isn't discounting that. Um, it is important to, you know, pass things along to the next generation and to teach them and to not you know, make the mistakes our fathers made. But at the same time, there's something bigger that can be lost when we hold on to that chain too tightly. And it's remembering that God has got us and that, 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 that logical assumption that, oh, if I'm barren, that means I don't have children. And God says, no, that's not true. In my world, the barren woman will have more children. In fact, she'll have to make her tent bigger. You know, uh, her children will will be like Abraham and Sarah. They'll become a great nation. Um, like you, you don't need to. Well, like Jesus is giving them permission to kind of um, believe outside of the confines of reality. And this is, I think, what Jesus has really been kind of honing in on. Um, what Jesus is really getting at and has been trying to get at the whole time is basically the absolutely massive spiritual implications of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's where Jesus' frustration comes in is that, you know, the people aren't really able to wrap their head around it. They're still stuck on, you know, kings and trying to take their land back, going back over the old narrative, but doing it right this time. And he's trying to say, like, no, there is like God's spirit is working among you. The bread of heaven is everything that gives life to the world. It's already here. It's already coming. God is already working and you can be a part of it. And it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to see it. It, it can be working in invisible ways, but just trust that God is doing that. Trust that a good God has still got you and that you will still have a family and that you will still be remembered and, and have a place in the kingdom, even if it all goes belly up, even if, even if you're Micah and all your stuff gets uh, stolen and taken away and your little, uh, your little personal world gets turned upside down. God's still like, you're still part of the, the, the big family. You're not alone. And that is, I think Jesus's heart here. And we're going to see like him continue to tease out the implications of this and, and we'll return to this issue. But, um, unless you have something, Brent Billings, let's go ahead and continue on to verse 46. No one has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the father. And I'm going to make an argument here. You know, it, it would be very easy to say that this is Jesus. And on one level, we could certainly interpret that. That's a fine interpretation, but you know, Jesus has not been shy about talking about his connection to God throughout this passage and his shift to talking about the one talking about this in the, in the third person makes me think that he is talking about the Holy spirit specifically. And, um, and I, I think what Jesus is trying to let them know is that like, like, again, this is Jesus, the man talking to them. This is Jesus who, you know, in not too terribly long is going to be dead. And then even after he resurrects is going to ascend into heaven and they're not going to have anyone. And, and he's trying to say, no, there's, there's one who has seen God is from God and that will still be with you. And I think this is again, like a continuation of Jesus articulating this new paradigm of, uh, the, this theology of the spirit. I think this is really important because, uh, often I think we underestimate or at least don't like fully plumb the deep implications of the spirit. Like uh, it's a game changer. Like we, we tend to focus on either the spirit as this 
a radical source of miraculous and mystical stuff, or we kind of relegate it to this background thing that's a personal source of guidance and conscience. Um, and I think Jesus is, is trying to articulate something that is much more profound, although maybe not in the kind of flashy, miraculous way we tend to think of when we think about like the spirit doing radical things. I think Jesus is articulating something a little bit more nuanced, but just as powerful, even more powerful, I would argue. Um, now that's a lot of me talking. Uh, now that I've thrown that out there, um, let's kind of let Jesus's words soak in and, but, but try and hear it as like, what if Jesus is, is trying to carve out a new paradigm? What if he's trying to break down the old, like, God speaks to Moses, Moses leads and speaks to Israel, that, you know, that, that kind of arrangement and paradigm, God speaks to the priest, you speak to the priest, like that is the paradigm that people are trying to replicate. And they're just, you know, they're returning to it just to try and do it right. And what is the new paradigm that Jesus is talking about? Because I, I got to be honest, a lot of times we duplicate this by making it, well, you know, it's my uh, uh, God, and then Jesus is my intermediary, and then I'm on this side, which, you know, there's uh, uh, certainly certain passages that back that up. But I, I think Jesus is creating a much more radical paradigm here um, that we could really learn a lot from. So with me having said a lot of stuff, unless you have something to add, Burnt Billings, let's go ahead and knock out the rest of this chunk that we're going to talk about today. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Okay, now I'm going to pause you there. Um, so let's break down what Jesus is saying here. Uh, so first of all, again, we have Jesus reiterating this image of like bread, not just being like God sustaining and, and giving life to the whole world, but bread as in the substance of Jesus's life. And that like the very incarnation of God is something that we can partake in and that it's there's no there's no barriers there there's no uh uh like special thing you have to do or special place you have to go to um and and a lot of times we limit this to just like the idea of salvation but i think jesus is is extending this much much more broadly that simply trusting that god has got you and, and not just like that god has got you like salvation wise, but that God has got you in, in everything that, that your life is not a waste, that the love you pour out into the world will not return void. Um, and you know, you don't have to, to say the right words or go to the right place or go to the temple or a special mountain or a special person that, that God is working and like everything God does is stamped with wildly more grace than we assume certainly more than they assumed. And that means that like, even if they lose that, that chain of teaching that they, they referenced, like God can still bring it back. God can resurrect dead things. God can give children to barren mothers. God will teach all your children. Like you, you don't have to worry about losing the thing God gives you. What God gives you, God gives you eternally. 
And you, you, you can just trust in that. You don't have to keep checking to make sure it's there. You don't have to, to keep uh, freaking out and saying, oh, am I, am I doing it right? Like, am I, am I avoiding the mistakes my father made? Like, we can get too neurotic about that and really lose the radical thing that God is doing. And I think that's the first part of what Jesus sets up. And we'll see the people kind of, again, uh, get stuck on one detail, and then Jesus is just going to hit the gas. So why don't we, why don't we read that? Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Mm. Yeah, like I said, we have the people, again, getting caught up on a little detail. I think Jesus's like intentions and in, I'm not sure if he intended to go like this hard with this detail. I wonder if he was just teasing it out and seeing what thing was the thing they stumbled on. Um, I think he's, you know, talking about incarnation, which, you know, is, uh, I want to pause on that for a second. Cause a lot of times when we talk about Jesus's incarnation, you know, we, we just think about it in terms of like the virgin birth and Jesus, the person, but, especially in the wider context of like Jesus being the word made flesh, like all of Torah is that on some level, um, an act of incarnation, trying to turn our material world into something that is infused with God, that the way we eat and the way we, the way we do everything and how we live is full of God and God's love that we've received and then pour into our lives and our relationships and people. And so when Jesus is talking about incarnation, he's not just talking about the fact that, you know, he's God made flesh. He's also talking about he, the way in which he lives out Torah, the way in which he makes Torah a reality, that he makes God's word something that is his very life. And that's what he's inviting them into. He's saying, you know, stop, stop thinking about the, the bread of like specific teaching that you have to pass on to get by. Like it, they're thinking about bread kind of the same way we think about sustenance. And this goes back, I think, to Jesus's earlier, um, accusation about them just wanting bread. He's like, you, you want teaching the way you want bread. You, you think that it's like something that you need to, to hoard. And if you don't have enough, you're not going to be okay. And you need to store it up and you need to give it to your kids and you pass it on. But, um, no, like you can have access to it at any time. God is always working. God is always teaching you. You're not stranded from that, that, uh, the spiritual lineage that we're all a part of. Um, now, I think when they get caught up on this detail, this is why Jesus intensifies it in, you know, using such gory language. Um, but I, I want us to think for a moment about why Jesus intensifies the imagery in this way. Because on a surface level, we could say, well, we knew he was going to do this. You know, he, he wanted to do the Gideon thing. He wanted to whittle down the people. So he's using, you know, a, a gross image to drive them away. But I think that's showing selling Jesus short uh, because, you know, I don't think he's just going to abandon 
teaching just to uh, uh, you know produce the uh, shock value. Like that's not how uh, that's not how rabbis roll. So what is the significance of him upping the ante when they when they come you know kind of get a little uh, uh, bugged about him you know saying you know well how are we supposed to eat his flesh? Why does he intensify to say you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life? You like you have to do this otherwise you won't have this security I've been promising you. Like it seems to kind of even cut against that message of security and God's compassion. Like if you, like you've just been telling him like hey trust that God's got you trust that God's got you and now all of a sudden you're slapping a really horrific condition on top of it and saying it, it but you have to do this really really gross thing or you don't get it like that's that's a weird move on Jesus's part right like what why is why is Jesus doing that and i think what Jesus is doing here is he's returning back to Pesach imagery, because Pesach is one of the few times in the Torah where there is compulsory eating. You have to eat the the Passover lamb. You have to drink the wine. And if you don't, like the Torah literally says you're cut off. If you don't participate in, in Pesach, you are, you are cut off. You stay behind in Egypt. Um, and so it being one of the, again, very few instances where there is compulsory eating and drinking, I think Jesus is returning to that and saying like, you guys don't get it. This spirit thing that I'm talking about, this new paradigm, I'm not just talking about like, hey, here's some nice, you know, new little spiritual discipline you can add if you want to. It's not a big deal, whatever you're comfortable with. He's saying like, no, like this is, this is the way out of Egypt. There is no other way out of Egypt. You need to trust that there is a spirit that is working all the time, even when I'm gone, even when you don't see the evidence of it in front of you, even when it doesn't play out like you think, even when the exile goes on longer or there's a new exile that rolls in and you thought you were going home, but now you're not like this is the only way out of that. And he's not just bringing them out of Egypt, not out of literal oppression, because as they've seen, oppression is a cycle that just keeps rolling. There's always a new exile. There's always going to be someone who's oppressed. This is the way out of that cycle that they described with the with the, the chain of the you know ancestors passing on to their descendants and on and on that they've been chained to. Again, not that there's anything bad about that, but it can be something that we get stuck on as like, that's the thing that, that determines our success or failure. Like, am I able to, to, uh, uh, successfully pass this along to my kids? What happens if your kids go another way? What happens if you lose your kids? What happens if, you know, you go into exile and then all the, the nice temple that you built gets torn down? Like what happens then? What do you have left then? Do you just give up? Or do you trust that God still got you, that you can still, that you can resurrect that dead spiritual lineage that feels like it's gone, but it's not gone. And I honestly, I feel like this podcast is a, a great example of that, you know, like for uh, a long time, like, you know, Christianity has not really had a lot to do with its Jewish roots. And here we are, we, we're bringing it back. And that's not just because we're so smart and we have all this new, uh, evidence and stuff. Um, not just cause we have new fancy archeological stuff and studies. It's, it's because the spirit is working and is, is helping these conversations happening. And it, like, again, to go back to his remez of Isaiah, he's like inviting them to, 
to think outside of cause and effect, right? Like a barren woman doesn't have children. That's just a fact, right? And in Isaiah 54, God's like, yeah, but she'll have more children than the woman who has a husband, the woman who's like popping out babies, who's fertile as can be. She'll, uh, the, the barren woman's the one who's actually going to have more kids. That doesn't really make sense to us. Um, but it makes sense if we believe that there's a spirit there and that, you know, maybe we're not talking in flesh and blood terms, but in spiritual terms. And, and that's what I want to kind of shift our discussion to now. Like those principles, you know, I've kind of been describing them in abstract terms, but let's talk about them a little more concretely. Like Jesus will say later about the spirit, like regarding words, like you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. Because when you're there in the moment, the spirit will give you the right thing to say. And I find that super convicting. I mean, you know, we've been doing this podcast out of uh, meticulous notes that I've been compiling. I think a lot about what I say. And it's really scary to let that go and to to go into a, an important conversation or into a podcast episode and not to know everything I'm going to say and to trust that I'm going to have the right words or, or even that the right words may not feel like the right words. Like there are words that I might be saying right now that may, you know, make some people angry or may not work or maybe, you know, grit that people have to struggle with. And I might get an angry email that might make me think, oh goodness, I said the wrong thing. I shouldn't have said that. But I don't know, maybe the spirit is using it. I, I literally, I, I can't know. I could make an assumption one way or the other, but really what it comes down to is like, can I trust that the spirit is going to work through my words? Even the words that maybe are the wrong words, the spirit can still work with that. The spirit can redeem all that. Um, I think the same thing about like relationships, like it, it's so, it's so hard to look at relationships that are broken and not just to trust that they could be redeemed, but that God is already redeeming them that like we've, uh, and this is not to say like, you know, we don't have to try cause God's doing it all. But just like, if we really believe that the spirit was working there, like that, that there is an unseen spiritual force pulling things back towards, uh, Shalom that would free me from having to be the one to, to, you know, um, be the architect of, of Shalom for me being the one who has to solve all the problems. Um, or, you know, even for me feeling like, like I have to, to carry the burden of a relationship. Like it, it, it gives so much freedom, especially when we think about like our place in history and our legacy, like we don't control when we're born and we don't control the historical moment we stepped into. I, I didn't get to decide where Christianity was at when I was born. Like that was all done before me. And, and I'm a part of it. And, um, it, it, it's, it's often like really easy for us to want to disown the church or, or, um, like set ourselves apart from the, the parts of Christianity that we don't like. But if we believe that the spirit is working in all of it, then I can say, you know what? I'm a part of it because I am, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I call myself by Jesus's name. I'm a part of this great body of believers. A lot of them I don't agree with. A lot of them I think are on the wrong path. But if I believe that there's a spirit working, I don't have to worry about that. I, I just have to worry about um, 
how am I engaging right now in my moment as best as I can? And that's what we need to have faith in. That's what Jesus is challenging them to have faith in, that if we are just engaging honestly and, and trying our best, um, and again, not not being like Micah, not just being, you know, go hard on the piety and don't think about all other concerns, like balance it out with some wisdom and, and to have some self-awareness to know when we're just uh, doing righteousness to toot our own horns or to serve our own purposes. You know, it's very easy to do that. But, you know, assuming that we have some self-awareness and some introspection and all that, like to trust that, you know, our, our legacy is something that is in God's hands. Like, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think about this a lot. Like I, I've got cancer. I'm going to undergo a major surgery. I, I don't know if I'm going to live through that to be perfectly honest. And there's a lot of me that like, uh, like I'm not scared of it, but you know what I, I do get worried about is like, I, I know I have so much teaching in me. I know I have so much Torah to explore and I'm like, Oh God, like, don't let me die before I've like dug all that up. Don't let me die before I've, I've gotten this teaching out there and I don't know, gotten it into a book or on a podcast or somewhere. Like, let me just get that out. And God really challenged me. Like, you know, even if you're, if, even if, you know, you get the transplant and you die on the operating table in a month or so, like you've still done enough. The spirit is going to use everything you've done. None of it will be forgotten. None of it will be wasted. All of it is part of the kingdom and will be part of the kingdom forever. All of it will be resurrected to new life. And that is powerful. That's a game changer. And because it doesn't just help me be less anxious or less worried. It helps me keep abreast of what the mission really is, like how to build real community, how to build real kingdom, not just to do things that make the lights on my dashboard blink and tell me I'm winning, right? To go back to the thing we talked about last episode about like blind success. It, it's easy to be like, oh yeah, I'll be able to rest, you know, when, when my ministry is successful and we have a lot of students and a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, witnesses and testimonies to tell and good stories to tell around the fire about all the good things God has done. But you know what? It's also okay if we don't have any of that. Like all my effort and all your effort to listening this, all your effort still counts. It's all gathered up by the spirit and worked into the kingdom. If you are honestly engaging with it, if you are loving your neighbor, none of that goes to waste. All of it redounds into the kingdom and it echoes through eternity. And that is what Jesus is inviting us to, to look at the world through. And that frees us from looking at the numbers and getting caught up in these little productivity traps and other ways that like empire seeps into our ways of thinking. If we really, really like trust that the spirit is working in powerful ways, not necessarily miraculous, not like big ostentatious ways, but subtly and everywhere, everything like Jesus said before, the the bread of heaven that is all the life giving stuff that God is pouring into our world. If we see what we're doing as part of that, as just as much a part of that as what Jesus is pouring into the world, then there's no reason to be afraid. And there's no reason to second guess it or to to get caught up on like, oh, is this my calling? Is this what God really wants for me? Like, you know, definitely have those questions and think about that. That's a good thing to think about. But when you hear the spirit and you feel 
the spirit giving you a word to say, it's really easy to second guess that. It's really easy to overanalyze it. It's really easy to, to not, um, leave any space for the spirit to actually push us. Like, you know, Marty, you know, gave a really impactful a lesson in an episode about making space and spiritual disciplines. And I think what's so important and one of the big implications, at least for me from this teaching of Jesus, is that it's not just about creating like a big space where a, a discipline can fit. It's also about creating lots of cracks, lots of little tiny spaces between all the things in our life. Lots of little moments where we can pause and breathe and just just give God's spirit a chance to push us or pull us or confirm something in us. I can't tell you how many times like it's been just that, that little still small voice, not, you know, not giving me secret hints about how to do everything right, but telling me like, Hey, you don't have to be worried about that. You don't have, you're, you're caught up on this because of, you know, I don't know, some childhood trauma or something. You're, you're in your head on this. You can just trust. You can just trust that you're on the right track. You're good to go. Walk forward. Be confident. God's got you. That is what we need to make room for. And and you can do it just by taking a moment to breathe and look around you and feel God's God's spirit, you know, blowing through your hair. It's all around you. It's already happening. It's been happening your whole life. And it's still happening and it'll always happen. And it's God trying to teach you. Just like Jesus said, God will teach all your children and will make your shalom great. And that doesn't necessarily mean everything in your life is going to go well, as we all know. But you can still have great shalom. I'm not in a great place in my life right now. And I can honestly say I have a great deal of shalom. And it is precisely because um, even before I started working on this uh, episode, God has been really teaching me about how profound the implications of the spirit are how profound um the reality of the spirit is and when i when i trust in that when i live in that when i when i try and walk out torah with the spirit and and not trying to appease the people around me not trying to just trust in that my best is good enough that even my not best is also good enough that what i have to give is always going to be held by God and is going to be forever part of the kingdom and part of the family and part of the body. And, uh, that gives me a lot of hope and that, that that changes how I think on a, on a deep, deep level. That's what it's done for me over the past year. And, uh, I think that's what Jesus is getting so fired up about. Dude, you're on a roll there. (laughs) (laughs) That, that was, uh, that was beautiful and heavy and freeing and like everything all at the same time. Well, thank you, Brent Billings. That means a lot. Good stuff. Well, as we record this, um, nothing has changed since our last episode, um, but that was only an hour ago. So <laughs> yes. I did, I did wonder as we were leading up to this recording, I was like, I wonder if Josh will get the call like in the middle of our recording. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but that has not happened. So, um, you know, it'll be three to four weeks uh, before these two episodes are out. So once again, if we have any additional updates, um, we will tack them on to the end of the episode somehow. Uh, but otherwise, just join uh, Josh's Caring Bridge um, mm-hmm. website and get get the journal entries from his wife and um, 
stay stay up to date on his situation. Yeah, and you know, and if you want to, always feel free to uh, get at me on the Baymoss Slack or um, send me an email, midrashjosh at gmail.com. Um, you know, I, I got a lot of free time right now, so questions are welcome. Even if you just want to talk, I love talking with random podcast listeners all uh you know we can video chat for an hour or something uh yeah feel free to reach out i love y'all and uh god is good okay sounds good well uh if you want to get a hold of marty on twitter you can find him at marty solomon i'm at yabacb uh, I am, of course, on the Baymont Slack as well. And you can find more details about the show at baymontdiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>